Take a Bible this morning and find Exodus chapter 3. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, you can pull your notes out if you'd like to follow along with what we're talking about. As you find Exodus 3, I'll tell you that as I prepared this last week for this sermon, I had, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but I had more fun preparing and studying and reading about this passage than I've had in an awful long time. And there was more stuff that I wanted to cram into this sermon that I had to cut out than has happened to me in an awful long time. My, uh, my discard pile was really big, and so I've tried to pare it down so we'll only be here a couple hours, and I hope the stuff that I left makes sense and we can kind of tie it all together. I actually want to pick up where we left off last week. The big idea of the passage we looked at last week is this. God was going to use Moses to get Israel out of Egypt, but first he wanted to get Egypt out of Moses. Not just did he want to get Moses out, but he wanted to get Egypt out of Moses. And the good news is God did what he set out to do. And so we'll start with this idea this week. Not only did God get Moses out of Egypt, but after 40 years of shepherding, God also got Egypt out of of Moses. And so last week we pieced together the timeline and we said that there was about a 40-year period where Moses, after he left Egypt, lived amongst the Midianites and he was a shepherd. And during this time as a shepherd is when God really refines Moses and he gets Egypt out of Moses. You remember back in Genesis 46:34 we read that Egyptians despised shepherds. They hated shepherds. And we read in Exodus 2.19 that when Moses shows up in Midian, the daughters of Jethro, they have this little encounter with Moses at the well, and they go back to their dad. And do you remember what they say? They say, an Egyptian delivered us. He looked like an Egyptian culturally, ethnically. He looked like he belonged in Egypt. And over 40 years of doing a profession that he would have been raised to despise... God, through this process, 40 years, gets Egypt out of Moses. 40 years is pretty easy to read in the Bible. 40 years is not as easy to live, is it? And if you're in that 40-year period somewhere, you may be saying, where's the fast-forward button? Like, how do you get to the end of that quicker? Couldn't, it, couldn't God have fast-tracked that a little bit and gotten Egypt out of Moses quicker? Why did it take 40 years? And this is, I don't know that this is profound, but I really like it. A.W. Pink in his commentary just says, God is in no hurry. He's not in a hurry. Some of you are always late. You're always in a hurry. Some of you are always on time, but you're still always in a hurry. We just sort of live our lives by the clock in this country, in this culture, and we always have somewhere to go, something to do, something's next. The calendar alerts us. Uh, Our smartphones keep us, you know, on track and on schedule. And it's just worth reminding ourselves that God doesn't get in a hurry. And he chose to use 40 years of shepherding to get Egypt out of Moses' heart, to get this Egyptian, to get all of the mess of Egypt, out of his heart. It reminds me, some of you have read the, the Lord of the Ring books or maybe you've seen the movie. There's a line where Gandalf the wizard is talking to one of the little elves and I was going to read it to you and then I found it on the internet and Ian McClellan says it way better than I could read it. So I'm just going to play it for you real quick. A wizard is never late. 
nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Never early, never late. He arrives exactly when he means to. And that's what A.W. Pink is telling us about God. He's not early, and he's not late. Things happen exactly when he wants them to happen. He is in no hurry. And it's 40 years of shepherding, of a job that he would have been raised to hate that gets Egypt out of Moses' heart. Moving on a little bit, we really don't know anything about the religion of Jethro, priest of Midian. I just want to throw this out at you and acknowledge it. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but the text tells us that Moses' father-in-law, this is the second time we've read this in Exodus, was a priest in Midian. Some people try to look back and they say, look, the Midianites came from Abraham. We talked about that last week. Abraham's wife late in life. Her name was Keturah, and they say the Midianites probably worshipped the God of Abraham. They were monotheists, and they worshipped the Lord, and they fell in line with that. I think that's kind of far-fetched because you've got four centuries, 400 years between Abraham and Jethro. We read later in the history of Israel, it doesn't take them 400 years to fall into idolatry. So to think that these people held on to the truth about God for 400 years, I think, is a little bit far-fetched. And the truth is we don't know much about Jethro. We do know, this is just a little, I'll throw this out to you, and you can Google it later if you need something to Google. There's a religious group in the Middle East called the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. They're like a weird mixture of Hinduism and Islam and Judaism, all thrown into one bag and shake it up. And the Druze look back and they say, the founder of our faith is Jethro, the priest of Midian. So if you want to look that up, you can have something to Google this afternoon. What we do know is that this guy Jethro had some sheep and that his son-in-law Moses kept the sheep. And the text is going to tell us that Moses takes the sheep to a place called Horeb. And now this is on your notes. Scholars debate the location of Horeb, but most believe Horeb is a group of mountains And Sinai is one mountain within that group of mountains. So sometimes it's called Horeb and sometimes it's called Sinai. And if you're not from there and you live 2,000 years later and you don't speak Hebrew, you read all these place names and you say, why couldn't you just pick a name? Why do you have to use all these different words? Well, Horeb probably refers to an area and Mount Sinai is the particular mountain that we're talking about. And there's a couple of possibilities for where this is. I'll put a, a map up on the screen and you can sort of take your pick. Most Bible scholars pick the red triangle. And they say that's the mountain that we're talking about, the range of mountains and the actual peak. It's down in the Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and uh, what we would call Saudi Arabia over on the right. And there's actually a place right where that red triangle is that's called Jebel Musa, which in Arabic means Moses' mountain. So some Bible scholars, in fact, it seems like the majority say that's where Sinai was located. That's where Moses had this experience. I actually think the green triangle on the other side of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba is a better pick because in the book of Galatians, Paul says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. He doesn't say that it's in Sinai. He says it's actually in Arabia. And so I think the green triangle is a little more likely, but you can pick which mountain you want to you settle on, which coordinates, GPS location, whatever. The point is not we need to figure out the mountain because this particular place is holy. That's not the point in the story, and it was never the point for the Jewish people. The point for the Jewish people was this otherwise unimportant mountain became a holy place when God's presence showed up there. The place is not that important. 
The presence of God is what's important, and that's sort of what we're going to talk about this morning. The big idea is really simple. God wanted Moses to know the truth about his character, his being God's character, not Moses' character, but God's character. He wanted Moses to know who God was, what he was like, what were his attributes. And he's revealing himself to Moses in this burning bush at Horeb so that Moses gets a glimpse of God and begins to understand his character. And so we're going to read the passage. This is maybe one of the shortest passages we're going to look at in our study of Exodus. We're really about to ramp it up and cover a lot of material week in and week out. But this morning we're going to look at Exodus 3 and we're going to read verse 1 to 6. So you follow along in your Bible as I read the scriptures. This is what we read in Exodus 3.1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's pray. Father, we read your word and we just pause in reverence, in respect to acknowledge you as as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses in this bush. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, forever. There is no change or shadow with you. Father, the things that we learn about you in this passage are just as true today as they were thousands of years ago. Father, our response to you ought to be exactly like Moses' was thousands of years ago. And so, Father, as we look at your word, we ask for wisdom and understanding, and we pray for hearts to respond in a way that would honor you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to just stop before we jump into this passage, and I want you to try to think about something in your life that's just burned into your memory. Right? There's some things in life that you remember because you've seen pictures of them and you remember the pictures and that kind of helps you remember. There's some things in life you remember because people tell stories about that day or that event or that moment and it's always sort of brought back up. But there's a few things in your life, probably not many, but a few things in your life that when it happened, it was so impactful for whatever reason that it's just burned into your brain and you remember it as if it happened five minutes ago. I tried this week to think about things in my life like that, and I came up with a pretty short list, and you may laugh at my list or you may not, but here's my list. 
Number one on my list, I tried to go in uh, youngest to oldest. Things just burned on my brain. Number one was the Harlem Globetrotters. The first time I saw the Harlem Globetrotters at the Amarillo Civic Center, and we just sat courtside, and I just remember sitting there watching those guys and the things they could do with the basketball. Just, it absolutely blew my mind, and it's just burned into my brain like I was sitting on the front row yesterday. The next thing on my list was the first time I saw a real fight. Not like, you know, third grade boys sort of slapping at each other. But the first time I saw a real fight, I remember that. I remember where I was. I was actually in someone's house looking outside to the street, and I saw it happen. And it's just, I could replay it just like it happened yesterday. Another thing on my list was uh, going to the, the Royal Gorge in Colorado. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, so the closest I can come to that is the Royal Gorge. And I remember as a young kiddo, uh, we went there and we fed the deer who were very tame, and then we went out on the bridge and you just looked down, and I think it's 1,800 feet straight down in that gorge and the cliffs just all the way down. And I just remember standing there and what it looked like and what it felt like to, to be in that moment. And the last thing on my list is pretty old, was actually going to the Astrodome. And uh, I've talked with Jason Westfall, Mr. Astro, lately, and we've laughed at, you know, if you went to the Astrodome, you thought it was huge. But if you ever went to the Astrodome when they were building the new one, it kind of looks like a JV building or something. It just looks small. But I remember the first time I walked in and just saw the expanse of how big it was. And that moment is just sort of etched into my brain. There's a million things that you remember, as I said, because you've heard the stories, because you look at the pictures, maybe you watch the videos, but there's a few things that just get burned into your brain. And I got to think that for Moses, one of the things on his list was the moment where he's out in the wilderness and he sees a bush burning that isn't burning up. And he says, sort of out of curiosity, I'm going to go see this bush that's on fire, but that's not being consumed. And I imagine that was just something. For all the amazing things that he saw that we're about to study in the book of Exodus, this one sort of came out of nowhere. The others were a little bit expected. This one just comes out of, no, out of nowhere. After 40 years of shepherding, 40 years, day in, day out, night in, night out, normal routine, just you're used to everything that's going to happen and you know what's going to happen next and then all of a sudden this thing happens that I imagine was just burned into his brain. Theologians call this, what we just read, this moment where Moses sees this bush, a theophany. Theologians use the word theophany to describe a visible appearance of the invisible God. A visible appearance of the invisible God. You read in here, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Angel of the Lord in Hebrew is Malach Yahweh. Angel of the Lord. You'll find it about 67 times in the Old Testament. This is the first and the only time you'll find it in the book of Exodus. The angel of the Lord appears to him in this bush, in this flame of fire. Here's the interesting thing about the angel of the Lord. Sometimes you read about the angel of the Lord and it seems like, it seems like this is a messenger sent on God's behalf. It seems like it's somebody distinct from God sent to represent God. 
But then other times, and sometimes as, as this passage is an example, you read about the angel of the Lord, and it seems like the angel of the Lord is the Lord, speaks for the Lord. And when people see the angel of the Lord, the text, the Bible tells us that they have seen the Lord. And you sort of live with this weird tension of who is the angel of the Lord? Who are we talking about here? Sometimes it seems like it's distinct from God, sent by God, and sometimes it seems like it's God himself. It almost reminds you of something you read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You read that verse and you say, well, who's the Word? Was the Word with God or was the Word God? And the answer is yes. The same and different. The same with a distinction. You read the same thing later in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Well, if you're one, how can there be an I and how can there be a Father? That sounds like two. How can two be one? It sounds like you're the same with a a difference or a distinction. And that's exactly what you read in the Old Testament when you read about the angel of the Lord. It sounds like it's God himself, but it also sounds like there's this distinction from God the Father. Some theologians don't really prefer the term theophany, theos, T-H-E-O, meaning the Greek word for God. Some prefer the term Christophany. Because they say this is the second member of the Trinity making a visible appearance before the incarnation. So you can pick the term, theophany or Christophany, whichever one you prefer. The point is this, and you can't miss it. When Moses sees this flame of fire in a bush, it's not just an angel. We think of Christmas, angels, wings, and glitter, and white robes. It's not just an angel appearing to Moses. This is God appearing to Moses. We call it a theophany. We read, it shouldn't surprise us that he, he appears in a flame of fire. And if you've been tracking through the Bible, and if you continue to track through the Bible, these are some of the things you read about other theophanies, other time God appears. Do you remember Genesis 15? God puts Abraham to sleep, and the animals have been cut in half on either side, and right through the middle comes a fiery pot, right down the middle. It's the presence of God in this vision. We read later, after the passage we're looking at this morning, that when God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, he appears to them in a pillar of a fire, smoke by day and fire by night. You get to the book of Daniel. Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God. And Daniel says, as he looks at this vision and he tries to put it into words, he says, the ancient of days is seated on a fiery throne. It's just another detail you're supposed to say, I've heard that before. This is the presence of God. We read in the book of Revelation that John, the apostle, as an old man, has this vision of Jesus, who when Jesus was on earth, they were best buds. He was the apostle Jesus loves, but he sees Jesus, and he's different now. He's in this glorified state, and John said his eyes were like flaming fire. It's from Genesis all the way to Revelation. When God appears to somebody, you see this image of fire, And you read it here in Exodus 3 and you're convinced that God himself 
is appearing to Moses. And the reason he's appearing is that he wants Moses, this deliverer, this prophet, this rescuer, to know who God is. So the question we'll answer is this. What did God want Moses to know about his character? Six truths, and we'll move quickly through most of these. Number one, God is holy. He wanted Moses to know that he was holy. It may surprise you that this is the first time in the book of Exodus that we've read the word holy, and it's only the second time in the Bible that you find the word holy. The first time you find the word holy is in creation where God makes everything and then he blesses the seventh day and he sets it apart to be different. And the text says in the first chapters of Genesis that he made that seventh day holy. You don't read that word again all the way through Genesis until you get to Exodus. And what we read here is that this place, this ground where Moses was standing was holy ground. And it was holy ground because the Holy One had invaded this space. And the Holy One was appearing to Moses in this space. And the root idea is exactly what it is in Genesis. There's something different here. There's something distinct here. There's something unique and set apart here. God is not like anything else that you've ever encountered. He's not like anything else that you ever will encounter. He's in a class all by himself. He is the one and the only He's the Holy One. And when he shows up, God says to Moses, the place where you are standing is holy ground. Second, God wanted Moses to know that he was self-existent. Self-existent. Theologians talk about the aseity of God. And I looked this week and I couldn't find an adjective that fit my outline, so I didn't use the word aseity, but it's A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God. And what they mean when they talk about the aseity of God is that he is self-existent. He is dependent on no one or no thing for his existence. We're going to find that next week when Moses says, Who are you? And God says, I am. I am. No beginning, no lineage, no birthday, no parents. He exists simply because he exists. We see it in this passage when this bush is on fire but it's not consumed. He doesn't need the wood to make fire. You need wood or kindling or newspaper or something to make fire. God doesn't need that. He can simply be fire, make fire. He's completely and totally self-existent. Related to that, number three, he's eternal. He's eternal. Verse six, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, and he's saying to Moses, look, you had a beginning and a birthday and a start. There was a time when there was no Moses. But I've always been around. Back when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Amram, your father, were around, I was around then. I have no beginning. I have always existed. He's eternal. This is the thought I remember as a child. You talk about something burned in my brain. I can remember as a child laying in my bed at night trying to wrap my arms around this. Thinking, okay, I had a birthday, a beginning, a very first birthday, April 28, 1982. Before that, there was no Landon Coleman. God 
has always been. There has never been a time when he was not. He is eternal. He's dependent on no one for his existence. He is self-existent and eternal. And number four, he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He can do anything. Things that we think of as impossible are possible to God, like bushes being on fire that don't turn into ash. That's not hard for him. Look at this quote from one of the commentaries I read this week, a guy named Peter Enns. He said, bushes don't remain unscorched when they're on fire, but neither do rivers turn to blood. Frogs, flies, and locusts do not normally invade a nation. Gnats are not formed from dust. Hail and darkness do not fall on command. The firstborn of a nation do not die all in one night. Seas do not form walls of water. He's not saying, I don't believe any of those things happened. He's saying, you and I can't make them happen. God can make them happen because he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants to do, and it's not difficult for him. He doesn't have to exert himself. He doesn't run out of energy. He's omnipotent. Fifth, he's unique. He's unique. This one's important for Moses, and I think it's important for us. He shows up and he appears to Moses, and Moses doesn't exactly have a clue what's going on, and God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Americans, we hear God, and we, we just kind of naturally assume that we're all talking about the same person, the guy up there. We're not all talking about the same person, not today and definitely not in Moses' day. Moses came out of Egypt where there were dozens and dozens and dozens of gods and goddesses. A god for this and a god for that and a god for this other thing. He lived in Midian. Later we'll find out in the Bible that the Midianites were idolaters. They believed in a, a, a number of gods and goddesses. Moses was used to hearing about all sorts of gods. And God is saying to him right off the bat, listen, I am one and only God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And anything that falls outside of the way I have revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've got to be done with. You've got to, be, you've got to set it aside and forget it. All that stuff you learned about the gods of Egypt, forget it. That's not who I am. All that stuff you've picked up from the Midianites, be done with it. That has nothing to do with me. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen, we live in a spiritually charged culture. People believe in the supernatural. People believe in God. People believe there's some higher power. Watch TV shows today. People believe in all sorts of fantastic supernatural things. And you and I have to be reminded that when we talk about God, we're talking about a unique God. Not just anyone's idea of God and we throw as much nonsense into that category as we can, but a very specific, unique God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The God who revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And anything that falls outside of how God has revealed himself to us, we've got to be done with. Listen, our ideas about God must bend to how he reveals himself. 
God's character will not bend to our whims and thoughts and fancies about what he's like. Our thoughts about God are the ones that have to change. God is who he is, and he's a unique God. Not any idea of God will work, but a very specific idea that you see in Exodus 3. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All these other ideas of God you've got to put away. And you and I, living thousands of years later, we live in a world and in a culture with plenty of ideas about God. And you've got to put all of them aside except for the ones that line up with the way that God has revealed himself to us. So he's unique. Last, and I think most amazing, God is relational. He's relational. It's amazing when you read about God's presence in a bush on fire that is not consumed. It's amazing. But it's a small miracle compared to what comes next. And I'm not talking about the plagues. And I'm not talking about the Passover. And I'm not talking about the exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea. I'm talking about what comes after all of that when the people come out of Egypt and God's presence is manifest among his people, Israel, in the wilderness, and they are not consumed. If you're amazed that the presence of God didn't destroy a bush, how much more ought we be amazed that the presence of God, the presence of the holy God, the eternal God, the omnipotent God, the self-existent God, did not totally destroy the wicked people who came out of Egypt. It's a miracle. And it's an amazing thought that God desires to have a relationship with his people, so much so that he goes to great lengths to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And don't miss this. Of all of the ways that God could have described himself to Moses, he could have said, I am the supreme being. I am the unmoved mover. I'm the first cause. I'm the beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. He humbles himself and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the idolater. I'm the God of Isaac, the coward. And I'm the God of Jacob, the con man. And he chooses to identify with sinful men to such a degree that he says, how can I tell you who I am? I mean, I could come up with any number of things, but let me just use this. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The book of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 11, and it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And I know we talk about sin here And I know we talk about the holiness of God here, and we talk about how those two things just are on a collision course that they can't coexist and something has to be done. We talk about that idea a lot, but don't miss the amazing grace in this passage when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the great, all-powerful, almighty, always existing, can do anything he wants, God lowers himself and identifies with human beings to such a degree that he names himself with the names of sinful men. And he says, I'm their God. And the book of Hebrews says he is not ashamed to be called 
their God. I tried to think about how to explain this this week, and I don't know that this is very helpful, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if it connects with you. I'm a KU fan. You guys know that. I like the Jayhawks. So it's November, and December's close. That means it's about the season where I get mouthy because it's basketball season. So I'm going to start talking. Here we go. Basketball's up. We're ranked number two. We have a good team. And some of you are wondering, well, where have you been for the last several months? Because football started three months ago. Well, Jayhawk fans go into hiding during football season. And we just sort of keep our mouth shut and we try to lay low. And look, I was going to put a picture on the screen of Jayhawk football. And I Googled it and nothing came up. Google had nothing. I said, we don't know what you're talking about. They don't play football. There's nothing to show you. There's no articles. There's no links. There's no pictures. There's no videos. There's nothing. So for a Kansas fan, you spend all the football season not wanting to associate with your team because they're embarrassing. They can't beat a high school team. But then basketball comes around and you say, ah, yeah, yeah, that's me, Jayhawk fans. Yeah, I've been here all along. What you have in this passage is not God hiding. It's not God saying, please don't associate me with Abraham. Please call me anything you want, but don't call me the God of Isaac. That guy was a loser. Whatever you do, don't call me the God of Jacob. Have you read the stories about Jacob's life? Please, don't call me the God of Jacob. And Hebrews 11 says, he's not ashamed to be called their God. Con men, cowards, idolaters. And he humbles himself and he says, I'm with them, and they're with me, and nothing's going to change it. I read this week a biography, autobiography by C.S. Lewis. It's called Surprised by Joy. Went down to the Ector County Library book sale a couple of weeks ago and got a bag of books for two bucks, and this is one of the ones I threw in the bag, and I read it this last week. And he talks in this book about how he grew up in a sort of nominally Christian home and then he faded away from faith and he became an atheist and he spent many of his adult years and growing up years not believing in God. But then he came around and he describes in the book how he came back to faith and how he came to admit that God was God and Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. And I just want to share with you one quote from the book that I think fits with what we're talking about here. He says, in the Trinity term, he's talking about a a semester of of teaching at a university. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. He's describing how he came to faith in Christ and he comes to the end of it and he finally admits, God, you're God. I admit it and I submit to it. And he says in the book, he describes it at great length, I was dejected by that. I wasn't thrilled by that. I was embarrassed that I believed that. I was humiliated that that's where I had come in my life, that I actually believed in God. And he looks back on it years later and he says, do you see the the humility of God in accepting a convert like that? 
Somebody who was dejected to admit that God actually existed. And he welcomes reluctant converts. And he identifies with sinful people. All because in mystery of mysteries, this great God who gets nothing from us and needs nothing from us, we don't add anything to him, desires a relationship with his people. And you see it all the way back in Exodus 3 where he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am not ashamed to be called their God. And he would look around the room today and he'd say, I'm the God of you and you and you. And I know all your mess and I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Not like a closet KU football fan. But I'm with you and you're with me. And he desires a relationship with his people. How do we respond? Two very, very simple thoughts. Number one, we fear God and acknowledge our creatureliness. We fear God and we acknowledge our creatureliness. Moses' mind is curious and before long his heart is fearful. We read this in verse 6. I'm the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Rightfully so. It's what the book of Proverbs describes over and over as the beginning of wisdom, fearing God. It's what Jesus talked about in the Gospels where he said, don't fear those who can take your life, but fear God who can throw you into hell. We are called from the beginning of the Bible to the end to be people who fear God and who acknowledge our creatureliness before God. And that's where God says to Moses, take your shoes off. It's the only place it's explicitly commanded of somebody in the scriptures. Take your shoes off because this place is holy ground. And when Moses the shepherd takes his sandals off, his feet are on dust. And it's intended to be a reminder to Moses, you came from dust and you're going back to dust. You're very earthy. You're very creaturely. You're not like God. You're different than him. So we fear God and we acknowledge our creatureliness. Last, second, we recognize our need for a mediator. We recognize our need for a mediator. I'll be honest with you. A week ago, if you had asked me to tell this story to somebody and to tell it in as much detail as I could muster, I think my version in my head of the story is Moses is with the sheep, And God appears in the bush, and it's on fire, and I remember all that pretty well. And then he says, Moses, Moses, and he says, here I am. And then he says to Moses, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. And in my brain, the reason Moses takes his sandals off is so that he can approach God. This is holy ground. Take your sandals off. Then you can approach. But that's not what the text says at all. If you listen to the text, it just says this in verse 5. God said, do not come near. Do not come near. Take your shoes off, but don't come any closer. Moses is confronted with the great dilemma that we're confronted with thousands of years later. And the dilemma is this. How can an unholy person come into the presence of the holy one? How can that happen? And the answer in Exodus 3, 5 is, it can't. Don't come any closer. Stop. The answer in the fullness of biblical revelation is, it happens through Jesus. 
through a mediator, through someone who brings us close and gives us access to God who is holy. You think about a couple of passages. Think about 2 Timothy 2, 5, where we read there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, between men and God, and it's the man Jesus Christ. He's our go-between. You can think about Colossians 1. Do look it up later. In Colossians 1, Paul tells the church in Colossae that through the cross, through what Jesus has done on the cross, he actually makes us holy. So that unholy, sinful people like me and you and Moses can have access into God's presence. You look at this story and you're reminded I don't get to just waltz into God's presence on my own. God is holy and I am not holy. And the only way that I have access to him is through a mediator. It's through Jesus Christ. This morning, if you take nothing else away, you take this idea away that if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, it's not because of your goodness, it's because of what Christ the mediator has done and provided for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here this morning and maybe your, eye, your brain is filled with ideas about God and what he's like. And maybe you need to sort of sift all of those ideas away and pare it down to say, this is how God reveals himself. Everything else has to go. This is who God is. And you realize when you get rid of all the stuff in your head about God, you realize, I can't just come to him on my own. I can't just come into his presence as an unholy person, but I need a mediator. I need somebody to make me holy. If that's you this morning, we would love to visit with you when our service is over. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to trust in Jesus, and to have access to a relationship with the holy God. I'm going to ask you to bow, and we're going to pray as we begin to respond to what we've heard this morning. Father, we stop and we simply ask that you would help us to think true thoughts about you. That the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of our culture would have no bearing and no impact on the way that we picture you and think of you and approach you. Father, help us to see you for who you are this morning. Father, help us to see ourselves as sinners. Father, and above all, help us to see our need for a mediator, for a go-between, for somebody that can give us access and somebody that can make us holy. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And as we move into the Christmas season, we celebrate his birth, the birth of the one who came to reconcile us and to redeem us and to restore us to a right relationship with you. Father, we want to take a moment to sing about your greatness and your glory and your power. Father, to acknowledge that you are the one and only God and you are worthy of our worship. So, Father, be honored as we sing and lift our voices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up. We're going to sing one last.